electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber along with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. Carl and Jim both have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to have the last trading day of the week here, you can see where things stand. We are, uh, we're strong, man. We're strong. Let's get to our roadmap. <laughs> it does start with that uh, June jobs jump. Stock futures, as you just saw, they are rallying after the U.S. added a better than expected 850,000 jobs last month. Plus, shares of Virgin Galactic soaring as founder Sir Richard Branson plans to fly to space next weekend before arrival. Jeff Bezos, Virgin's CEO, is going to join us this hour. And Didi shares under pressure, China announcing a cybersecurity review just days after the company's IPO. All right, we are obviously reacting to those jobs numbers and what they're going to mean. And then, of course, the questions about uh, inflation and or lack of uh, or at least uh, shortage of workers and so many different things uh, in the mix, uh, Mike and Morgan. Uh, and then you look at that tenure. Yep. No real reaction. Mm. You know, even though I continue to have those conversations that I'm sure both of you do as well with people saying, I see inflation everywhere. That's I right. see it in, you know, I see it in our supply chain. And it's not necessarily something we think is going to be transitory. I see it in terms of our inability to hire the workers that we want. I see it in what we have to pay. I see it in the commodities that we have to buy for our end products. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that sort of gets right to the heart of that inflation debate on whether it's so-called transitory or not, because we're talking about something like freight rates, right? Those can be cyclical. We've seen bottlenecks. We know that's tied to COVID. Similar situation with some of the commodities. Uh, Obviously, we've seen China also putting a lid, and that is one of the biggest consumers, as well as producers of industrial commodities. They've been putting a lid on on some of those prices as well, reasons you've seen things like copper coming under pressure as of late. Meantime, crude oil, that continues at multi-year highs. We have a spat reportedly with OPEC as well. Unlikely you're going to see that necessarily change because here in the U.S. you have drillers not necessarily drilling. They have sort of changed the focus uh, in terms of their balance sheet. They're more focused on cash flow. And you have a Biden administration that's not necessarily eager to see more oil come out of the ground. So all of these different inputs, plus you put on top of it wage growth. And as you mentioned, that labor shortage, which is particularly sticky. If employers are increasing salaries, that is not something that is likely and and hourly wages, that is not something that is likely to go away. Bonuses, different story, but hourly wages and salaries, that could be a much more longer lasting scenario that I'm sure the Fed is watching very closely. Yes. And the question is whether we just have this step higher in prices across the board and wages. And then from there, it's moderate growth going ahead. And that's really the way the bond market and the Fed seem to be playing this. Today's number uh, was reassuring on a couple of fronts, the, the greater than expected addition of net new jobs, mostly really the upside surprise coming from the public sector. So it's, it's not a super hot number, but definitely reassuring after a couple of months of disappointments. That tells you, OK, fine, people are getting back to work. Some of the industries are finally being able to fill those open positions. On the wage front, though, it was no hotter than expected. Right. Yeah. And also, 
the labor force participation rate was pretty much flat. Um, that's a kind of a, something we really have to watch because for the Fed, the question is, is the job market operating as if it's tighter than it should be, given how many jobs were down. I think that's the big question. The, the bond market was seized up ahead of uh, this number because the uh, thought that maybe it can get a hot inflation implication. It's sort of relaxing at this point mm. on that front. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all know demand does seem to be quite strong. Uh, you get these numbers, Mike, though, and you look at the 10-year, barely yeah. budging, still right around 143 after, of course, that move that we saw higher and then the beginnings of uh, erosion of that when growth stocks started to come back, let's sure. call it mid-May. And here we are uh, again, and I mean, bringing it back to the market as well, something you've been talking about yeah. uh, often, of course, is the return of many of those growth names to at least yeah. a better performance than they saw for most of the first half of the year. And today looks like it'll be a little bit of a, of a NASDAQ day to that point, right? When yields go down, uh, that would be the outperforming area of the market, though it's not been so binary. It's been like, you know, you've had, you've had to sort of give and take on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, you, got, you also got to factor in the fact that you do have, at least on a global basis, some some fears around this Delta variant of yeah. the coronavirus as well. And some of those names that over the past year plus we have seen trade higher when you have seen concerns in the market uh, around the pandemic rallied again this week as well. So, so that's worth watching, um, as well as the fact that on the bond side, that yield curve's been flattening, yes, right? Yeah. And so financials, which have been such a strong performer, have been slipping a little bit, too. All right, let's get more on the market's response to today's jobs numbers. And for that, we're joined by David Kelly, chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and David Balin, chief investment officer and global head of investments at Cities Global Wealth. Uh, good to have you both. David Kelly, let me begin with you. Just give me your reaction to the number and, 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 and what you're seeing in the markets right now and whether that sort of accords with what you would have expected. All right, well, it's really a tale of two surveys. I mean, what the household survey said uh, you know, with actually a decline in employment of 18,000 in the household survey, an increase of 850,000 in the payroll survey. I don't think I've ever seen a difference as big as that. So there is a lot of confusion in the numbers. But what I still see is basically what a lot of you have been talking about, which is there is tremendous demand for labor out there and it's hard to hire workers. And if you look at the wage growth numbers, one of the things we do is we look back over the last two years rather than just back over the last year, because that way you, you get rid of some of the pandemic distortions. And on that basis, average hourly earnings for production workers have been rising at a 4.6% annualized rate over the last two years. And that's the strongest since 1983. Um, so there is tremendous demand for labor here. Um, and I think those wage numbers are strong. I mean, remember, we're adding in a lot of uh, low wage workers back into the labor market right now. The, the growth is in restaurant workers, service um, hotel workers, and still those wages are climbing. So I see a lot of demand mm. for for, for workers here. And I do think that when those unemployment benefits finally lapse, and that really hadn't happened in the June survey, when that lapses in half the states for the July survey and in all the states for the September survey, I think you'll see a lot of, a lot of job growth. So I think there's a lot more growth, a lot more potential inflation in these numbers than the bond market seems to perceive. All right. Well, all right. Back to this wage number that you cited in terms of the actual increase in 1983. Is there anything that you uh, any correlation that can be made from that period to this one, David Kelly, uh, that will help people understand sort of what to expect? Well, yes. I mean, I think when it comes to inflation, I think we're in a somewhat sticky situation. Um, I, you know, I, there, a lot of this is transitory, but I think when, you, when workers get used to those wage increases, I think, first of all, the wage levels will stick. But I think some of the wage increases will stick also. People get used to that in, increase in, in wages. And it's, it's feeding through to expectations, too. So 
we're looking at expectations, we're looking at wages are the two things which are likely to make this inflation episode more than just transitory. And we are seeing that in this in this survey today. And it's it's not quite back to the 1970s in terms of inflation. I mean, not by a, by a long shot, but it is more inflation than we've seen in recent decades. David Balin, given the conversation we're having, given those those data points we just got out of the jobs report this morning, we were talking about the 10-year yield under pressure, but we have seen this flattening of the yield curve overall. What is the Treasury market signaling here? Well, I think it is. It's telling us that this is a this is a transitory moment. It, we're going through a boom. To David's point, you know, the expectation was 720,000. We've wildly exceeded that. We're seeing wages up. You know, what this means for the economy is that we are going through a boom. That is to say that we're going to have a much more rapid recovery now than we had in 2008 and 2009. We could be at full employment next year in the United States. We've got lots of households with a lot of savings, and they're going to go out and spend that on services in restaurants, in hotels, and airline travel. And so we're going to see a very robust economy over the course of the next, um, uh, uh, let's say, year to year and a half. The fact that the 10-year is where it is is indicative of the fact that the market does not believe, the bond market does not believe that there's going to be the level of inflation that David and, and I might expect. And the reason is that if you, let's say you buy a 10-year bond at 145, and inflation turns out to be two and a half percent, right, which is just 50 basis points more than it was for the last decade, you would lose 1% a year. You would lose 11% of the value of your portfolio over 10 years if you hold bonds. That's the real loss in value. And that has not occurred for a long period of time here, right? We, we've just come off a 30-year period where owning bonds was a good thing. So this, from an investor standpoint, is a really critical thing to consider. If investors are not going to be paid to hold fixed income, that is, a, I think, a, a tailwind for the equity markets and, and, and for certain growthy parts of the markets, like you've talked about in technology. David Kelly, the way the market, at least on first reflex, has reacted to the jobs number today is to suggest that it buys the Fed time to continue to be patient, right? The dollar index has come down. Uh, you saw like three and five year yields come in. They've been very sensitive to incremental Fed expectations. Is that correct? And, and what do you think that does mean for uh, an equity investor? Well, I can see why the market's taking it that way, because, you know, I think the one one surprise in this report was a 5.9 percent on the unemployment rate. Remember, the Fed currently expects the unemployment rate to be 4.5 percent as an average in the fourth quarter. And we seem to that seems to be getting more and more elusive. So I, I think that may have a calming influence on the market. Uh, but, you know, as an investor, I, 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 you know, just look carefully at valuations here, because at some stage, these yields have got to move. Because if you look at it this way, I mean, if the federal government can borrow at one and a half percent, they're just going to keep doing it until, uh, you know, the Treasury market cries uncle here. So, I, I, you know, this is just encouraging tremendous fiscal spending. And we, and we get another surge of fiscal stimulus here. Eventually, those rates have got to move higher. And uh, you just need to make sure you're positioned for that, even though the market seems pretty complacent right now. All right. Well, David Balin, real quick, final to you, then, if you need to be positioned for that, and obviously you're losing money conceivably if you're right about inflation, then you need to own equities, don't you, David? You do. And you need to think about three different buckets of equities coming in for 2022. You need to think about owning dividend shares where earnings can grow. You think you need to own the tech stocks that you think can actually maintain above average growth rates for a period of time. And you need to think about moving into foreign markets uh, which have much better valuations than we see here, uh, and especially those that are in the industries that will benefit from what I would describe as a mid-cycle economic recovery. In other words, we're going to rapidly move from the beginning of a, of a growth phase to a normalized growth phase. I agree with David that it would surprise us if, if we didn't see rates on the 10-year, you know, at 
190 you know plus at, at, at peak but but even that is a very low number um, for the economy and does indicate that we we could certainly accommodate a fair amount of stimulation and, and a sustained economic growth for several years to come. This is going to be a good time for equity investors, and we're seeing clients, you know, at City Global Wealth positioning themselves in equities right now. Yeah. All right. From one David to two others. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Thank you. It's like David tripled. Mm-hmm. David, David, David. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, shift gears now to a major move it, major mover in the pre-market right now, and that is Virgin Galactic. It is soaring. It's up about 22.5% right now, uh, trading around almost $53 a share. The company announcing founder Sir Richard Branson plans to be aboard a planned test flight that's going to be July 11th, so next Sunday. The flight would be nine days before the scheduled Blue Origin flight to take that company's founder, Jeff Bezos, into space. Uh, stay tuned, because we're going to have a first-on interview with Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Coldglazier a little bit later this hour. But in the meantime, guys, what a busy week for this sector that is emerging uh, within the public markets as well. I mean, obviously, Virgin Galactic's publicly traded. We actually had another one, DSPAC, yesterday, Astra, which is which is higher, too. But in terms of this so-called billionaire space race, we've been talking about this. We've been anticipating this for years, if not decades. And it's really now in the process of manifesting over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I actually spoke to Sir Richard Branson earlier this week on CNBC because his other space company, Virgin Orbit, successfully carried satellites to orbit. I asked him if he was going to be flying to space this weekend or trying to beat Jeff Bezos to space. And this was before the disclosure we got last night. Here, here's how he responded at that time. Jeff who? Because, because Virgin Galactic is a public company, I am not allowed to, um, be, to, be, to, to talk about that. When the engineers tell me I can go to space, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be going to space. All right, flash forward to, I don't know, 36 hours later. We now have a date, July 11th. I'm going to be on a lot of planes and a very busy lady over the next couple of weeks. Watching billionaires go into space. Yeah, pretty huh? much. Yeah. Um, pretty there much. There goes another one. I, I, will say, uh, I will say, as far as this is concerned, this is a test flight. Um, Sir Richard will be joining three other crew members in the cabin to test the astronaut experience. Um, whereas Blue Origin, it is Bezos going up with his brother, going up with a very legendary aviator, and also the winner of an auction, that nearly $30 million auction. So that will be having the first paying passenger. So there's some little differences and nuances, but really this is about one billionaire getting there yeah. before the other. It's, it's, Suborbital it's, space. It's boys and their toys is what we're talking about. But, you know, Bezos is going on the what? anniversary of the moon landing. He says, you know, that nobody can take that away I from mean, him, right? I mean, this is the most amazing marketing moment yes. for space tourism. <laughs> no doubt about it. It. All right, we'll talk about uh, much more later. Coming up, uh, Didi gets hit with a Chinese cybersecurity investigation just two days after going public. Details when Squawk on the Street returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. 
You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. I'm Phil LeBeau with breaking news. Ford June sales down 26.9% uh, as the company feels the impact of the chip shortage during the second quarter. And then that carried over into June. June sales down 26.9%. F-Series sales, and this is one that people are tracking closely, down almost 30% as the company had to restrict production. The transaction price, however, up 15.5%. What a huge increase in transaction prices. Guys, I'll send it back to you. Shares of Ford moving a little bit higher after reporting those June numbers. Guys, back to you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Phil. Yeah, and uh, of course, they've been very strong this year in part on the, on the uh, expectations for their uh, ability to, uh, to garner significant market share in EV. Let's move on now to shares of Didi, which are under pressure in the pre-market. This after the China Cyberspace Administration said it will conduct a cybersecurity investigation on the ride-hailing service. The regulator is asking Didi to stop new user registration during the investigation. The company says it will cooperate with government authorities. And this, of course, is one in a series of different moves, really, that have begun uh, last year. Our viewers may recall, of course, the expected uh, IPO of Ant Financial, which got pushed aside uh, when there was unexpected turbulence and uh, uh, opposition uh, from the regulators uh, in China. Uh, you move on to Alibaba, you move on to February when the market regulator Samer talked about anti-monopoly guidelines to target internet platforms and tightened existing restrictions faced by the tech giants. In May, you had 13 firms, financial fir uh, arms of food delivery giants as well, and, and Didi adhering to tighter regulation of their data and lending practices. You had Tencent. Uh, on and on. And the question that I've, you know, there are many U.S. investors who own many of these stocks uh, has simply been, are they going to reset? And then can we assume this is the new normal and work from here? Or is this going to be a continuing series of new regulations that we're not necessarily expecting? And obviously it has impacted greatly impacted the performance of many of these stocks. For sure. And, uh, you know, Didi, the certainly kind of thing was hovering over the offering. It didn't trade particularly well. It traded down to 14 and change on the first day. It came back yesterday. So it's going to get back yesterday's pop. But definitely this growing feeling that the Chinese authorities kind of don't want their large companies to necessarily be accessing global capital, becoming kind of global franchises and having ambitions beyond their borders. And, you know, being almost bigger than, uh, you know, than the domestic sphere. You look around the world, the largest economies are all cracking down in their own ways on big tech. Very different reasons, very different approaches, very different intentions 
behind it. But that is essentially the trend uh, in terms of China. I mean, I think nothing speaks more to what we're seeing than you saying Jack Ma is laying low. He has not disappeared earlier this year. And that being a big news story. Yeah. Yeah. And he continues to. He's not missing. Uh, but he's he's not what he was in terms of being an outspoken and occasional critic even uh, of the government. That That is over, at least for now. All right. When we come back, uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos is giving up the CEO reins. We're going to look at what to expect from his successor, Andy Jassy. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. To say that Amazon has had a phenomenal run with Jeff Bezos at the helm would be quite an understatement, but he is now passing the CEO torch to his AWS chief, Andy Jassy. George Boza is in San Francisco with what to expect now from the Jassy era. Morning, Dee. Good morning, Mike. Well, it is always day one at Amazon, but Monday kicks off a new era, new CEO in Andy Jassy, new guiding principles, fresh challenges. Jeff Bezos, he created some $1.7 trillion in shareholder value over the past two plus decades through relentless customer obsession and the startup mentality, even as it became one of the biggest companies in the world. He stayed true to that. Jassy, though, begins his reign with a bit of a softer approach, empathy and a goal of becoming Earth's best employer. Those two principles were added to Amazon's leadership principles yesterday. And as the company has more to obsessive over than customers these days. There's its growing workforce, labor activists, regulators, and lawmakers scrutinizing its size and influence. As always, guys, there are still investors as well looking for ever more growth at a time when Amazon is facing more competition than ever in cloud, its profit engine, and e-commerce sales that are set to slow post-pandemic. Now, Bezos, as executive chair, he will still be involved in all the major decisions, but it will fall on Andy Jassy to navigate this delicate new balance. And Jassy, not Bezos, he is likely the one now to face Congress and antitrust pressure, much in the same way that that task has fallen on Alphabet, Sundar Pichai, when its own founder stepped back. So there's a general consensus, though, that if anyone can follow Bezos and his playbook, it is Andy Jassy. He has been there since almost the very beginning and, of course, pioneered its cloud business, AWS. As for building Amazon's next pillar, well, Bezos hinted just a few months ago before he left or is leaving that it could be media and entertainment through Amazon Studios. So that is something to watch out for. And guys, coming up on Tech Check, we will be speaking with John Doerr, Kleiner Perkins chairman and one of the earliest Amazon investors, as the legend goes, these two tech nerds. Uh, Dor and Bezos, they met in 96 and immediately hit it off. So a few people know the company and Bezos and Jassy better than him. All right, we're going to be looking forward to that interview. Dear Jabosa, thank you. Speaking of Jeff Bezos, Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos' company's competitor, space company's competitor, is planning to take Richard Branson to space before him as a battle of billionaires reaching a whole new level takes shape. Do not miss our first on interview with Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Colglazier. That is in the next 20 minutes. In the meantime, futures are pointing to a higher open, and the open bell, opening bell is just five minutes away.
Welcome back. We're about a minute away from uh, beginning trading here, of course, uh, ahead of a long weekend. Mike Santoli, and I'm looking at an S&P that's up 15% yep. essentially for the first half of this year. Of course, we asked you all those questions yeah. yesterday, what we can expect for the second half. But anything that the market may key off of in particular, obviously, given we did get that jobs number, although that's not necessarily indicative oftentimes of what we can expect in the market. Not, not often, not always anyway. No, I mean, I think that the jobs number at least took away the immediate fear that there was going to be something that changed the equation for the Fed. It doesn't seem to be the case. We do have a flattening yield curve. Therefore, yields lower. NASDAQ going to take the lead. Yesterday, S&P up half a percent on the first day. We're also six days in a row with new records on the S&P. That's getting a little stretch in the very, very short term. And of course, seasonality plays into this, too, something we've talked to you about as well. Natalie's come out of the so-called June swoon, although June was better than expected. Absolutely, yeah. So seasonals are good up until at least the middle of July, at least by the, by the history books, anyway. That is the United States Coast Guard in celebration of Independence Day. And that Happy was in the earlier when they, uh, when they entered the floor as well. Over at the NASDAQ EVGO, that's the nation's largest public fast charging network for electric vehicles. I believe Phil LeBeau going to be bringing us the CEO. We've had him on a couple of times before uh, of that company uh, as well. All right, we get started with trading here. The last, as I said, and the S&P is up yet again, Mike, uh, you know, at least in the first second here. You know, look at that old heat map. Where, what happened to the heat map? I don't know. Is there, maybe, maybe there's a malfunction. Oh, it's gone for now, right? We're doing some work back in the yeah, studio. Yeah, it's on hiatus. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. were asking what happened to the heat map. Yeah. So I'm telling you, it will be back. Don't you worry, and we will be showing it. But I'll give you my own heat map here. Uh, the NASDAQ right now, at least, Mike, outperforming. And I'm looking at some of the names that we've been following so closely. NVIDIA is just, I mean, yeah. incredible. incredible uh, yes. And well over a half a trillion dollar market value right now as it continues to move higher. NVIDIA been carrying really the whole semiconductor sector. I mean, AMD's come back uh, toward the highs, but basically it's been NVIDIA uh, almost to the exclusion of the rest. Yesterday is a weekday for Micron. Obviously, Intel's had its struggles. So, you know, does that change the interpretation of what the semi group is saying or not? Uh, unclear, but that's been an unstoppable one. I do see, uh, you know, a little bit of little bit of give back in the energy stocks today. So, yeah. again, we're on this little bit of a, of a seesaw. We sometimes are where uh, lower yields, let's buy the growth stocks with the incremental dollar uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, the recently strong energy stocks, of course, waiting for the OPEC uh, decision there, too, uh, have given back a little bit. That's right. Energy, utilities, financials, materials are the sectors that are in the red right now. To your point, tech higher again. Best performing sector uh, for the week so far in terms of NVIDIA specifically, stock split if I'm not mistaken as yeah. well. So there's all this, all the speculation that when we see that happen, it could potentially be brought into the Dow as well, which yeah. I think speaks to, again, uh, how tech-focused not only the market has been for years now, but also just the economy and the future of yeah. where the economy is going. Yeah, which whether that really is going to translate quickly into entering the Dow or not. By the way, if that even matters anymore. Yeah, because, yeah. Um, but I would look back to Tesla and, and Apple stock splits last summer because there was massive runs in the stocks after the splits were announced. When the splits became effective, that was your NASDAQ top for that moment and for those stocks for a while. So, I mean, it's kind of, if that's the reason you're buying, it's kind of silly. Uh, presumably, it's not the main reason people are buying NVIDIA, but who can tell? Yeah, uh, we're also waiting, of course, on that ARM acquisition, which continues to be a real question mark. But, you know, it has moved up the ranks of market cap. Let's not forget we began this week with Facebook crossing the trillion-dollar mark in, uh, in market value as a result of the success there that they had in court God, in terms of week. throwing out the FTC uh, case against them, at least the judge. The FTC does have, I think, what, 30 days or so to come back with an amended complaint. Um, Facebook shares up 30%. But to your point, I mean, Alphabet, 
Amazon, which we've been talking about, 1.73 trillion. Alphabet, 1.7 trillion. I, I don't get tired of saying these numbers because they're so extraordinary, yeah. Mike, and having mm-hmm. done this for as long as we both have, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just have to stop and say, whoa. Right. You kind of have to sort of explain to yourself again how big a trillion is. And, and really, it, you know, the overall stock market's not $40 trillion, or give or take. Um, that's obviously an enormous number. But uh, the concentration of those top five stocks also peaked last Labor Day. We are down from there in terms of their weighting, but still very high historically. Uh, so they still punch above their weight, both in terms of their profit contribution and to what they mean for the market. Uh, but the other types of stocks, the cyclical stocks, have done so well in the interim since really October 30th that it's, you know, kind of balanced things out at least slightly versus what it was then. In the meantime, we've had just a flurry of IPOs and companies going public this week. A few names that, that merged and closed with SPACs, but more or less, it's largely been the more traditional IPOs that we've seen, whether it is. Krispy Kreme or Sentinel One or Clear or Didi, which we were talking about earlier in the show. I could just keep going down the list. And then, of course, now we finally get this awaited, highly anticipated filing from Robinhood as well. And those numbers are certainly, I think, eye-popping, too. They are. Uh, just in terms of the pace of growth, how searing hot the first quarter was, both in crypto uh, and options trading. Dogecoin as a part of the crypto right. really speaks to some of the frenzy we've seen this year no as doubt. well. But I mean, I, you know, in, in, in looking through the S1 a bit, it is surprising to some extent, perhaps, just how much of their revenue and or at least potential profitability is a result of order flow. Oh, yes. Uh, it's about almost quarter, all so of 80, it. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder, is that a sustainable business model? Yeah. Like it's, what? When, you know, this company is going to come public, obviously it's got a great growth profile, but, and you've had a lot of people enter the platform, some of whom have made plenty of money, but are those sticky relationships that can grow to actually really become a true fee relationship, the likes of which, of course, some of the companies that we know so well have been able to sure. harness? And I, I don't know the answer. Well, the, the relationships are extremely sticky. The, the big market makers are going to be there and are willing to, to, to take that order flow and pay for it. I'm talking about the relationship between. To. But I'm talking about the relationship between the consumer oh, and the platform itself. Yeah. That's totally Because that's unclear. what you want to yes. cement. And it's very much unclear to me whether that would w- right. will really be the case. The majority of the of the revenue, of the tr- transaction revenue, is from options and crypto. Uh, that's because, of course, they charge zero commissions on stock you know, trading. But those are the high turnover, really engaged customers. So you have 18 million of them now. How many of them are there? Right. And, and what's your actual advantage besides brand and besides being the easy-to-download app and the one that your friends are doing? That's a powerful thing. But in terms of the innovation or the edge, you know, Ameritrade's got it. Everyone's at zero commissions. They have the platforms, you know, that have been in, in place for a long time. So it's unclear besides the brand and being out front of this generation of investors what there is there. Yeah. And is the overall market going to grow fast enough that it doesn't matter? They can just get their piece. We'll be talking a lot more about Robinhood, of course, as it gets closer to that public offering. want to turn now to Phil LeBeau. has got some breaking news for us on Boeing. Phil. David, take a look at shares of Boeing. There is a report out of Hawaii that there was a cargo 737 that experienced engine trouble after taking off uh, off of Honolulu and that they tried to turn around and get back to the airport and they had to put the plane down in the water. Unclear at this point uh, if there is a rescue operation that's taking place, the severity of this crash, uh, and other details in terms of the type of 737 uh, that may be involved in this uh, potential accident. But again, the initial report that we have is that this was a cargo version of a 737 that experienced engine trouble after leaving uh, Honolulu 
The uh, pilots were turning around, trying to get back to the airport, and the uh, report is that they had to put it down in the water. We're going to hopefully get some more details here shortly, guys, but that's the story that we're tracking at this time. Okay, Phil, thank you, and we'll be back to you as we uh, get more details. Phil LeBeau. Uh, Morgan, you mentioned, of course, what had been a very uh, strong week for IPOs, and I mean, this DD story is sort of extraordinary in that yeah. it comes public 14 yesterday, very strong day in the markets, and then today we get the news that the regulators are at least looking at a, a number of different things involving the company. Uh, you would have thought perhaps that was a risk factor and or something. I mean, they, there was some foreshadowing of it a few weeks ago and some reporting, but it you wonder as well as the Chinese are just sort of don't like the fact that they listed here, want to screw with us to some extent. The fact that I you know have an anniversary, a major anniversary in that country as well that was celebrated this week. So there's, I think, this sense of nationalism, perhaps even more so, at least from a public standpoint, um, given some of the commentary we got around that anniversary. And telling the company to stop signing up new users. You wonder just exactly how big a crimp that, that is, given that the market's already, right? So they have a lot of existing users. And if it's not just a kind of, you know, a gesture to tighten the to tighten the reins a little bit and say, we're here. Yeah. You know, don't, don't get too big. For, yeah. I mean, DD shares are down over 7%. Yeah. Again, after a nice move yesterday and still above where it came public. But there are a lot of other uh, companies. We talked about this briefly uh, in the last half hour, but there are a lot of other companies that have been hit, Mike. So many that we've watched over the last few years go public in our markets. Perhaps some of them get lost to a certain extent, but they do have significant shareholder bases of American investors. And, you know, the, the education stocks, for example, yeah. just got absolutely obliterated. Many of these names, you know, New Oriental Education, Tall Education Group, GSX, Tech Edge. That was back when Samer said, you know, these private tutoring companies, we've got some issues with them. They think they are false advertising, deceptive practices. It's just been one thing after another. It's not, and it's not, it's not just from China either, right? Depending on the company, depending on the sector, uh, depending on how the U.S. government is, is focusing on and thinking about some of these Chinese names that are listed here in the U.S., you've seen some pushback in terms of future listings, the crackdown in terms of national security concerns as well. So it would seem like some of these companies are really getting it from both, both sides. No doubt about that. Yeah, for a while, though, you're right. Anything that was just a sort of a, a play on the domestic Chinese economy that listed here just flew. And now it's yeah. just completely become uh, unwound. It is uh, time now for the bond report. Let's take a look at how Treasuries are faring on this Jobs Friday. No major move in the 10-year yield following the June employment report, although the initial uh, twitch was lower. So you hear uh, right around 1.454 on the 10-year and a decline in the five-year note to under 0.9%. And we can finish with a look at the U.S. dollar index, which uh, has actually been strong. It's been picking up the pace over the last several days. In fact, it was threatening these highs it had from earlier in the year. And you see it moderating right now, just marginally negative, but still uh, at a multi-week high. And probably adding to the pressure we've seen on some commodity prices as of late as well. well up next, Sir Richard Branson looking to beat Jeff Bezos to space with the help of his space company, Virgin Galactic. We have... An interview with the company's CEO, Michael Colglazer. That is coming up when Squawk on the Street returns. Stay with us. Welcome back. Take a look at shares of Virgin Galactic, up 19% right now. The company announcing it will attempt to launch its next test flight, uh, flight test, I should say, on uh, July 11th, which will carry founder Sir Richard Branson. Branson is looking to beat fellow billionaire Jeff Bezos to space. Uh, as Bezos looks to launch his own company, Blue Origin, uh, on that on that company's uh, 
New Shepard capsule on July 20th. Joining us now is Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Coldglazier. Michael, great to have you back on. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Morgan. It's a good day to be here. Yeah, I'm ex- what an exciting couple of weeks we have ahead of us. Um, you know, I spoke to Sir Richard earlier this week when your sister company, Virgin Orbit, successfully carried satellites to orbit. And at that time, when I when I asked him what the game plan was for him to go to space, he said that he was waiting for the engineers to tell me when I can go to space, quote unquote. You take that, you couple it with the FAA approval last Friday. How long has this plan been in the works? Well, the plan has been in the works you know, for quite some time because we had this test flight program going on. And as you know, uh, we have four test flights we were plan- planning to do. We did our first in May 22nd, on May 22nd, and it was excellent. Uh, and it showed that we are technically ready to go. Uh, we did a lot of diligent analysis after that flight. That's the same data that we gave to the FAA. And as you mentioned, uh, that's what the FAA used as the basis to approve our commercial license going forward. Um, And when we finished that analysis, we knew we would be pivoting from focus on technical side of the flight test to the focus on the cabin experience and what the astronaut experience would be like for these next two flights. Um, But we had to wait until the technical work was done, and Richard was pretty patient about that. Uh, So then, as we shift this focus to now the private astronaut experience and the cabin environment, these next two test flights are pretty much going to be the same. Uh, we originally had thought uh, we would maybe rehearse uh, and have somebody stand in for Richard just to kind of show what would be going on. Uh, we realized most of that training's done on the ground, and so we had a chance to say, Richard, you could go on either of these two flights. Which would you prefer? You can kind of imagine what he had to say back, and uh, he's excited to go now that it's ready. Yeah, I mean, given the fact that, that there has been that switch, um, the fact that he's going to be on this test flight sooner now. I do wonder, though, I mean, was the news that your direct competitor, Blue Origin, sending that company's founder to space uh, a factor in the decision for this change in timeline? Absolutely not. And I know it's a fun headline. (laughs) I know a lot of media uh, like that headline. We only fly when we've assessed all of our data and we are safe to fly and ready to fly. And we've been working on that all along. We announced quite some time ago that we'd be running these test flights and the next two would be in the summer. So Mm -hmm. um, waiting for the analysis, we've been planning for some time that our next of the test flights would be somewhere around mid-July. So that plan's been going. We finished the data analysis and that allowed us to announce uh, our flight date yesterday. Uh, And then we've also been planning for Richard to be one of our test mission specialists because we wanted him to represent all the future astronauts who are coming. This is going to be an amazing transformative event for people that they kind of plan for for much of their lives and are excited for it. Better than Richard, when he comes back for us to interview and say, okay, how was that? How did we deliver? How did we set up the training program? Was the journey that we took you on for the year in advance and the week in advance in New Mexico, did it set you up for this amazing moment above the earth? And that's his role. And we've been planning for him to do that for quite a while. The ship's now ready. He's been really patient about it. Uh, But now it's time. Yeah, and certainly I think back to last year pre-pandemic. I mean, the game plan had been for him to fly around his birthday, which is July 18th. Uh, So perhaps not that surprising to see it happen this month uh, in light of that as well. That being said, what is he going to experience, he and his three crew uh, mates? And what does that training ahead of time entail? 
Sure. They, this group of four mission specialists uh, are going to experience exactly what our future astronauts are going to experience. Uh, so the training actually starts uh, well in advance, as you know, Richard's been uh, ready for years and, and working on his training for that. But specifically for the week before the flight, uh, there is a period of very focused training. Uh, it's about building muscle memory for how you will work within the cabin. But it's also getting ready kind of physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, because the moments in weightlessness looking back at the Earth are relatively few over the course of a lifetime. And we want to make sure the memory is so strong and so, so powerful that it lasts with you forever. So all of our training is really focused on setting up that memory. Uh, that's what we're taking Richard and his team through this upcoming week. And that's what we'll be asking how it went when he comes back. Safety, it's of the utmost importance. How are you planning for that? What does that look like? Uh, well, I'd say safety is built in at the foundation of everything we do. And you, know, you mentioned we were originally planning to fly Richard well back like a year ago. And we had more test flights to do. We had more efforts to go. And so we never really worry about the schedule uh, driving anything. We worry about our technical readiness driving everything. And so that's how this company works. That's how we're built. That's where we're embedding in the culture of this. So now that the technical readiness is there, and it's there because of the data that shows it's there, and it's there because of the diligence of the team that works on this so hard. So now that that is ready, uh, it does really give us the ability to focus on the next phase, the cabin experience. And now we're going to get repetition and repeating under our belt on the technical flights. Uh, the last flight in May flew just as we wanted it to go. So we're just gonna keep doing that flight profile uh, and move forward. But this takes us another step to opening the door of making space accessible for far more people than has ever been possible. And, and that's pretty exciting. Whether it's Branson, who is one of the world's most prolific entrepreneurs and certainly a, a business celebrity and, and oversees not just and not as a founder of not just Virgin Galactic, but so many other companies within the Virgin landscape or whether it's future passengers that will be coming on board. What does the insurance situation look like? How do you protect from that standpoint? Well, right now we're doing our flight test program. And so these are all uh, mission specialists of the company that are part of the flight test uh, engineering plan. When we do go into commercial service, uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot going on from the insurance industry around it because it's a new industry and the insurance uh, industry will be bringing new things to the table as well. But that'll be part of our commercial service launch. Michael, you know, it's David Faber and, and listening to Morgan's uh, reporting on this for some time and obviously you and, and so many of your team there as well, the people we brought on. What, where are you right now in terms of your assessment as to what the total addressable market is for people who are going to want to go into space uh, in 2022 and most importantly, I guess, beyond that? Well, we view, I, I'd say this looks at this market in terms of, you know, let's say the next five years and then the next decade and where it goes from there. But in the reasonably short to medium term, uh, this is going to be a market that well exceeds our capacity to fill it. Uh, I think what we're doing, what uh, Blue and others uh, are, are doing is just adding excitement and a bit of normalization to the concept of human spaceflight. And so we believe the market for that is extremely strong. What we have to do now at Virgin Galactic is finish our test program and build a fleet of spaceships to serve that market. Um, and as we do this, and as more and more people come back on kind of first tracks and bring the story back down of, oh my goodness, that was the most incredible experience and it, and it really did change my life. 
I think that will feed this market going forward. And so that's that's our plan is to uh, demonstrate through these early flights how powerful this experience will be. Uh, we already have 600 people signed up. As we've uh, mentioned, we'll be opening up sales uh, following the second of these test flights, so probably at the end of the summer. And we expect that to be very robust um, because we're going to be limited in our capacity for a while. But then we'll get it opened up and it will become something that um, many, many, many people can aspire to. So I, I realize you said that the decision to fly on July 11th has nothing to do with the competition. That being said, Space Twitter has been, to use a phrase I've seen a lot on there in the last couple of days, there's been a lot of quote unquote space shade being thrown around. Just want to get your response to the CEO of Blue Origin, Bob Smith, on this statement. He said, quote, we wish him a great and safe flight, meaning Branson, but they're not flying above the Carmen line and it's a very different experience. Uh, first, I'd say uh, we also wish the Blue Origin people just the best. Uh, they do amazing things. They do a lot of amazing things. And the more people who go to space, the more we open up this door for everybody else. So we're very excited for that. Uh, we are going above the astronaut line. Uh, we've done this in the past. We've actually flown uh, the only commercial company that's flown uh, private astronauts or private citizens up above uh, the astronaut line and come down with astronaut wings. So. I think opening up space is not about going to a destination or a point. Uh, opening up space is about going to space, being weightless, and looking back down at this planet and, and recognizing our place in it. And our entire company is built for that purpose. That's what we do. Uh, I think Blue and others are going to do amazing things. They have other business models too. But Virgin Galactic is built specifically to bring uh, all of us uh, up into space and give them this experience. And I think we're going to do an amazing job of it. Michael, we appreciate you coming on with us. I know you've got a busy week and a half plus ahead of you. And I, I look forward to perhaps seeing you on the ground in New Mexico next weekend. I'm Michael Clover. You guys, Clover I hope you make it. It's incredible to, to be there. And if you miss it, make sure you see the live stream because that is going to be an incredible show. Thanks for joining us today. Bye bye now. All right, Squawk on the Street is going to be right back with the S&P and NASDAQ hitting fresh record highs this morning. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.